Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education. And I'm delighted to be here today with Gail Riggs, uh, the wife of Hank Riggs, who was the founder, founding president of the Keck Graduate Institute of Applied Life Sciences. Gail, it's lovely to be with you today. Thank you. Gail, could, to start with, could you tell us a little bit about Hank's childhood? Uh, where did he grow up? His education? Um, what what did he what did he do in terms of sort of preparing for his career? Well, he had multiple careers in a way, but he grew up in Hinsdale, Illinois. Uh, went to the public schools there, but in ninth grade he went to Phillips Academy at Andover. So he was educated there and found it hard, but his loyalty to Andover was incredible. He thought he got a super education there. Great. And what was it that led him to go off to boarding school at that stage? Is that something his his parents had done, or was this something that Hank was looking to do? No, Hank was definitely not looking to do it. They were having trouble with his older sister, and I think they just had to have him go off. And he was very homesick and miserable. But in the long run, he's very loyal. And, and where did he then go to college and what did he study when, when he went off he went to college? Stanford and he yep. was studied uh, engineering. It was called industrial engineering then. But he was more on the intellectual side. When he did labs, that was not his thing. Yeah. Right. But he and, loved the accounting part. And then he went to Harvard Business School. And did he go straight to Harvard Business School or did he work before that? Uh, he, We had gone together all through college and I was a year behind. He worked for Ampex for a year and started a master's, which Ampex was kindly funding at Stanford. And then when I graduated, his father again said, you should go to Harvard Business School. And so he did. And then when we came back, immediately Stanford hired him to teach in the engineering school uh, accounting. Mm -hmm. And he fell in love with teaching. It was his candy in life. And he never quit teaching from then on. And and Hank's career at Stanford was unusual in a couple of ways, right? He, He bridged between the engineering department and the management side. Um, sort of fostering that interdisciplinary. And then at some point, right, he went into the fundraising side of Stanford. So can you say a little about how that that came about? Yes. Well, he did found engineering management in the engineering school. He also taught in the business school. And so he was teaching management classes. Uh, So he was in both schools. But and those schools cooperate now, but they really didn't that much then. So he founded the engineering management and ran summer programs. Then when uh, we were on our very first sabbatical, uh, Don Kennedy, president of Stanford, phoned us. We were in Japan and asked him to be the vice president for development. And Hank said, I don't know anything about that. But anyway, he went... He went back to Stanford for a long weekend and uh, came back and said, it sounds interesting. I'm, I'll take the job. And what was so nice was that there had been troubles in the development department because their leader had gotten very mentally ill. 
and they were eager for a new boss and they taught him development. And I remember oh, oh, a few months into the job, he came home and he said, I've got it. And now I think I know how to lead and go ahead. So it was, he was excited. So, so I, I'm really curious about that because, you know, the Stanford president phoning you up, you, you've been a successful professor, you've built a new department, but that's, that's a, a really significant and unusual career change. Did Don share what it was that made him think Hank is the right person for this role, given that he hadn't previously, you know, done any full-time fundraising? Uh Sort of. I think he knew that Hank was a very good manager. He had been department head and he taught management, etc. But also uh, getting a professor to take this job, I believe, was going to give him points with the faculty. I mean, the, the, depart- the development department had been in some trouble. So I think it was because he had that different hat that Don hired him. But and, I, and, and given that, as you said, Hank really loved teaching and that he had built something really distinctive, and of course that industrial management department that Hank created, it spurred a whole lot of the companies right, have, that have been a part of the success of Silicon Valley. Yeah. So, you know, a, a lot of people, you know, engineering management, sorry, yes. And so, so yeah. what was it that, um, you know, a lot of people would say, that that's a wonderful gig. He loves teaching. He's doing it. What, what was it that led him to think, you know, okay, I'm going to spend my full time asking people for money and, and focusing on that. Well, you're, you're assuming that he quit teaching. He never quit teaching. Okay. And sometimes he would be on a trip and then he'd have a class the next day. So he might fly home from Chicago, teach the class and go right back. So mm-hmm. teaching was Absolutely. I'm saying he's Gandhi. Yeah. He loved so, it. So part of his condition of doing this was he didn't have to give up the teaching side of things. No. And that, that was true when he went down to Harvey Mudd, he, uh, which was very difficult for Harvey Mudd because they all their literature said every uh, faculty member has a PhD and Hank didn't. So they had to take that out, but he wouldn't take the job unless he could teach. Well, and I want to ask you about the transition to Harvey Mudd, but before we do, uh, for the Stanford side of things, is my memory right that Hank helped lead the first billion-dollar campaign there? Uh, I'm not sure if it was a billion. It was one of the first big campaigns, and it was quite a different. I mean, we had a little dog and pony show that we went around with, and it, it was kind of fun. Yeah, I'm sure. Now, at some point in there, did was Hank also the CEO of a company? Did he have? I I thought there was at some point an engineering company that he led. Yes, but you have to go way back. Okay, he was doing this early teaching. It, even when he didn't teach at Stanford, he taught at the local junior college at night. Uh, but yeah, he was president of. Uh, oh my goodness, one of the Silicon Valley. Companies. I was Icor, and then they kind of sold it, and then he was a chief financial officer for another one. So he was working in Silicon Valley, but again, uh, he could always come a little late because he would teach an eight o'clock class at Stanford. Right. Great. 
And so given given that he'd had then two very successful careers at Stanford, what was it that convinced the both of you to make the move to Harvey Mudd? And how did that come about? I think he, he was excited about being the president of a very good institution. And I'm the wife that follows along. <laughs> and and was was Hank was this the first time he had looked at a presidency? Had he had he considered other opportunities before that, or no. was there some connection with Harvey Mudd that? Uh, there was no connection at all. Uh, he was approached by a few institutions to be president, but we'd sort of look at it and say, "Uh, uh-uh. uh." Mm-hmm. But then Harvey Mudd was interesting, right? And obviously you know, has an outstanding reputation, one of the best undergraduate engineering programs in the country. And given Hank's love of teaching, I would have thought the the Claremont Colleges and that ethos would really appeal to him. Well, it did. Mm-hmm. So, so Hank admits in the book he wrote about the founding of KGI, uh, he sort of admits sheepishly that he had never taken a biology course in college. And yet he chose to to, to sort of resurrect the Claremont College tradition of founding new colleges, which had really stopped with Pitzer, he chose to do one in the applied life sciences. So I was curious, did he, was there, was it a process of looking at different ideas for what a new college might be? And then he settled on that? Or was it very much the idea of, you know, creating a new sort of version for the life sciences of what he had created at Stanford, just how that had come about in the process of of settling on that idea. I think the latter part of your question is more on, he he was in a club in downtown Los Angeles and had to give a speech one night and he was musing. And what he mused about was what if engineering in instead of being founded in the physical science, physics and all that, what if it was founded in the life sciences? And the more he looked at that, he thought, oh my goodness, that that has to be. Even though he hadn't studied biology, he could see that that should be where it is. I think he's one of the original thinkers of uh, the biosciences and in science that way. So he, uh, and then he, he, took this idea around to all sorts of academics and scholars, and they all said, yeah. So he went on with it. And of course, the timing was nice, not just he had obviously had a very successful tenure at Harvey Mudd and the the Claremont Colleges had not, but this was right when the Human Genome Project was, was occurring, right? And so the life sciences were changing so that they were now a much more quantitative science than they had ever been before. So I think there was a there was a good fit for this this concept that Hank had come up with. Yes, I think so. Yes, I'm curious. Time. The other it thing that he doesn't really. Schools. Sorry, Gail, I, I cut you short there. No, that's okay. I just say it was one of the very first schools, if not the first, to to combine engineering and biology, and of course, computer science. That was the other thing that. Uh, it's so prevalent now, but then you had to have those three things going. Right. And he and wasn't then, really good on the computer. Right. And then <laughs> the other piece he brought to it, of course, was the management and ethics like he had done with the engineering management degree at, at Stanford. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I'm curious, the, the other thing that isn't really uh, addressed in Hank's book is it's unusual to think about creating a whole college or self-standing institute just to educate 120 people. So he shares that the vision, you know, the starting class was 30, but they imagined that they, this could grow to 60 per year, getting this new kind of master's yeah. degree. Um, but I'm curious, did, do, did he have a vision or thought on how this might evolve? W was it always that it would stay that small, which is small even in the Claremont College terms, which are pretty small institutions? Or did he envisage that then it would naturally evolve and add other kinds of degrees or programs or other things? Well, he certainly thought it would grow and that it was an appealing uh, new new education. He was very excited about being having a really different approach in higher education. That uh, is in terms of all these new things that KGI is doing, I I think he died too soon. He didn't he didn't really see that. And I can't yeah, you know, none of that exists. He was he was pleased he about the pharmacy school. He uh did know that was happening. He thought that was a good idea. So he was uh, perfectly happy to hear about new things, but he was well retired at that point. Yeah. And and certainly I, I think that the notion of rethinking pharmacy education to understand the life science revolution fits very well with the notion that KGI had had of thinking about a new kind of education for integrating business um, with, with the life sciences and engineering. So yeah, that, that would have been my sense as well, that it would have fit naturally with some of Hank's vision. I'm also curious, um, as ambitious as it was to get the $50 million naming gift for, for KGI from the Keck Foundation, one of the things as you read the history is you realize that if the if the original plan of being given the 10 acres and to build the campus that quickly that money would not have been sufficient to both build a campus and fund the program that was starting and i i think about i know hank worked very closely with and was on the board of olin um which got the 400 million dollar naming gift from the olin foundation so I was curious if if Hank had a had a vision or thought about if if they hadn't found the Chiron campus, which you know having a whole life science set of buildings, which has worked as a as a great home. What what was the plan B if if there hadn't been able to buy an existing campus, which is obviously much built cheaper than building from scratch? How he was thinking about the the physical side of creating a new college along with the programmatic side. Yes. Well, it, of course it was a huge worry and I think he thought he'd just have to raise the money. Uh, but it was just wonderful that we were able to buy a complete campus with some good science buildings in it. That was, that was a bit of luck and luck we needed because, uh, the other colleges were being so difficult about uh, the land we were given that Mrs. Scripps gave for that purpose. So that that uh, that part was so difficult, very stressful. Yeah, and and even if those issues with the 
the field station and the free and title land to build, right, it would still have been a huge leap because even with the land being free, I'm assuming a, a good part, if not all of the 50 million would have been needed just to build, you know, the the wet labs and the and the buildings that were needed to to create a college if you if you didn't have a place you could have bought. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm sure they would have had to start very small and uh, we were just lucky. It was, I don't know what more to say. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, obviously worked out great. What what seemed like it could be a temporary solution, I think has, has proved to be a wonderful home and a bit like we have at Chatham, one of the, the best deals that my predecessor ever did was was buying an old 300,000 square foot factory that turned out now Google has moved a big headquarters to to Pittsburgh right next door and so that's a very hot neighborhood but that building came with tenants like one of the the largest buildings right that KGI built so it wasn't just getting a a facility, but one that actually was paying a good chunk of the the mortgage on it because you had a company there, right, renting the, you know, one of the big buildings that KGI had purchased. I think that tenant is still there in in the prettiest of the buildings. But then uh, there was a huge vacant lot next door. And KGI was able to buy that also, plus another building. This was kind of a industrial park it, yep. it, it it isn't the most beautiful area but uh it's it's just across the street big right. street from the rest of the colleges as you know yeah well and, and of course the other nice thing that yeah happened for kgi is the whole extension of the village where there was nothing over where kgi is now now the newest part of the village is all over on that side so it, it's right. really come come toward it they're absolutely right. I mean, Claremont even has a movie theater now. It's hard for me to believe that it didn't yeah. even have a movie theater when we were all there. Yeah. Now it's absolutely. quite a nice little thing. Yeah. I, I'm wondering, are, are there any um, particular memories that stand out for, for you from that period of, of before KGI opened, that five years um, when, when Hank for a while was doing double duty with Harvey Mudd? and then KGI, and then the period of that that initial founding where it was Hank and Bonnie and, you know, just just a few people coming together yeah. to figure out what was this new thing going to be. Yeah. Uh, it was a very stressful time. Uh, he actually got very depressed because he was just working so hard. And uh, the other colleges, a lot of the professors weren't supportive supportive at all they they were he wasn't having tenure i mean he this new school was very threatening to them so it was difficult and then he got cancer and so uh it it was it was hard but he kept going and he really believed in the mission and kept selling and finally it happened but it was it was a very stressful time and of course then when we really got going there was a social component. We entertained and entertained. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. And you'd been used to doing that in Harvey Mudd, but of course it continued with a new institution, right? At Harvey Mudd, I used food service. Ah. Yeah, I was chief. Yeah, you were the food service, right? That's I was, right. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and you, 
you certainly succeeded in creating a really warm environment for the faculty and staff and then the students when they arrived. I know that was something that made it feel very special that, you know, it really had a family atmosphere um, in those early days when there weren't many of us, right? That's right. Friday afternoons, a bit of scotch at our house. And you all played soccer, too, and then came up, didn't you? That's that's right. I think everybody in that first class and first faculty really knew they were pioneers, and there was a special feeling about all that. In fact, I remember one couple that got married finally, and the mother asked one of them, uh, uh, are you eating all right? Are you? And they said, oh, yeah, we eat at Hank and Gail's. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I remembered when I got the announcement for Mark and Jean, and, and we were actually able to go to their, their ceremony. That was, that was a lovely sort of thing about the closeness of that first class was seeing that that had happened. Yeah. I, I'm curious, you know, obviously this, this job was such a demanding one as it was to get a whole new thing off the ground like that, raise the money for it and whatnot. And then you mentioned that in, in the midst of that, Hank was diagnosed with cancer. How was, how was he able yeah. to, to keep the organization moving forward and running while obviously dealing with that, you know, very, very scary and disruptive thing from a personal perspective. Yeah. Well, he, he where there's a will, there's a way, I guess. He worked really hard uh, a, after chemo, and then he would, chemo the day of, you just do it, and you start sure. feeling worse and worse and worse. So pretty soon he would work all morning down in his office. Then he'd come home and immediately fall asleep. I was instructed to wake him up in an hour, feed him, and off he'd go again. But he was exhausted. The chemo went on for about three months. Then he had to fly up to Stanford uh, once a week for radiation. But uh, he did it. I mean, wow. he's. He was very, very thin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he was, was he was pretty thin and fit even before all this. But I imagine yeah. going through the all of the treatments was, you know, obviously it took hard. its toll. And but in and, a way, I think he felt that he had he had something so real that was important to him that that helped him get through it. Yeah. You know, he didn't sit around being sad. He had to keep working. Right. He and able to throw himself into that. And, and by that yeah. point, he had actually, I, I think, a, a lot of the core of the team, right? David Gallus and Greg Dewey and some of the others who made it happen had arrived, yeah. so who could, could yes. handle a lot of the day-to-day. Yeah, they were, that first bunch was just great. Yeah. It's interesting how, how many people have become presidents like you and Greg Dewey and David Gallus, of course, has been such a senior scientist. So David Gallus coming was a real breakthrough. Hank was really depressed, had to have a really leading scientist. And when David said yes, that was a turning point. I've always been unbelievably grateful to David. And and of course, David, you know, like Hank, brought a really unusual set of experiences and background to it, having been a physicist who became a biologist, having worked at, you know, helping to lead the Human Genome Project, started some bioscience companies. So I really thought of them as being such, you know, synergistic team together 
you know, their skills. And, yeah. you know, obviously David had not, he'd written big grants, but he'd never gone and done fundraising. So he talked about, you know, learning yeah. and taking notes from Hank and what he was doing. Yeah, they were a good team. So Gail, I'm curious that with all that he, he threw into it and devoted to KGI and seeing it really starting to take off, what what was the led to the timing for Hank's decision to, to step away from it when he did? Well, I will say that he felt he did it too soon. But partly, both of us are very hard of hearing, and he was having more and more trouble hearing. Uh, that was one. Two, he thought it was launched, and he thinks people tend to stay in jobs too long. Uh, if you look at his career, you see that he changed something every five years. So that was in keeping with the way he went. But then he he did feel he, he left it too soon, but it, it's okay. Well, I would assume also having had the scare with cancer, I know both of you were very keen cyclists and travelers. And so being able to enjoy some of that together, having worked so hard, first Stanford, then Harvey Mudd, then KGI, you know, and having the the close family that you do would all be, you know, factors I would assume were, were things, places he wanted yes. to be able to focus. Well, when he left KGI, when we officially retired, we climbed into our um, Eurovan, the Volkswagen, and went around the country and camped. So uh, you're right about the travel, and he, that was really fun. But and we had a a, a fun thing. I had a grandson that graduated from Pomona, and he and his buddies also stepped into that same Eurovan and went around the country. So deja. <laughs> That's great. Great to hear. Gail, is there anything in terms of, as you think about the, the founding of KGI or, or elements about what made Hank a successful uh, multiple college president that we haven't covered that, that you wanted to share? Oh, I don't know. I guess one thing, he does listen and, and re- really, really wants other people's ideas and will listen and give you full credit. I think you probably found that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think a wonderful mentor and, and, you know, I think he, part of his way of leading was to bring teams together and really get them to, to brainstorm and put out ideas that could move it forward. Cause you know, that was, we all knew that that institution was going to need to continue to evolve as we started it, right? Because no one had ever yeah. done what we were trying to do before. So inevitably, you were going to have to, to, to tinker and, and adapt. And great. Yeah. Well, thank and, you so much. And for, when he died, yes. and, sorry. No, no, no please. Was, he was a risk, obviously. And uh, even when he died, the, the kids put in a, a little folder. You make it a, a memorial service, Hank yeah. tipping over in a kayak. I mean, he <laughs> just was a risk taker. Yeah, absolutely. And, and his uh, pamphlet that you shared on, on venturing, right, that was part of not, not just that he took personal risks, but he really thought of it as something that was vital for the country and for higher education, right, is to to come up with new ideas and figure out how to make them happen. Yes, that's right. 
Great. Yeah. Well, Gail, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been lovely, lovely to speak with you. I really appreciate it. Thank you, David. I'm glad you're still interested in KGI. <laughs>